the Gospel of John, we are getting to a spot in John where Jesus' public ministry is about to disappear, and for the largest run of it, we're going to get to his ministry with the disciples. That's going to carry us chapters 13 through 17, with 12 being a little bit of a transition. But we're getting to his, his in the Gospel of John, Jesus' biggest sign aside from his resurrection. All right? like, of course, the resurrection is it. But his biggest sign is he's demonstrating himself to those around him. And as I think about where we'll be today, I think about the certain experiences that we have that become foundational for how we understand ourselves, how we understand the world. And, and we may not think of it like this, but most of your days, you forget about. I said, what did you do three Tuesdays ago? You might be able to look to the calendar and say, my calendar says I did this, but I don't remember if I did this. I can look at the grocery bill and tell you what the meals were, but I can't tell you when I ate them necessarily. So most of our day, let's be fair, we're on autopilot. We do the things that we're supposed to do, and that's, that's fine. All right? We need that to be sane. Then a lot of what forms who you are, aside from the kind of everyday mundane moments, are a few specific decisions. A few specific times where something changes in your behavior or you have some kind of experience, you go, I'm not the same anymore. You all have them. You've all had them. It might be the time where you, you kind of go, I think I'm going to ask her to marry me. Like, and it's just like, you made, that, you, you, you made that commitment in five seconds and it changed the rest of your life. Right? Like, like you just say, okay, you know, that kind of moment. Maybe you're talking to somebody and you say, this is what I need to do. And it's like this clarion moment and you go, that's it. I have had a few of those. I know you've had a few of those. One of mine is uh, when I was a pretty new dad and I was meeting with an anesthesiologist to give my permission for one of my kids. I thought it was my phone for a second. Uh, one of my kids to uh, have surgery at a day old. And so I'm sitting in the NICU, and there's all these pods of beeps and babies all around. If you've had a child in the NICU, you get all the beeping. Uh, so beeps and babies all around, and I'm at that center area, and there's the anesthesiologist, and, and he's asking me to sign permission to put my, my son under uh, anesthesia so that they can have surgery on him. And, of course, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to not sign. I'm going to sign it. But it was crazy because as I signed it, I was like, okay. This is the first time in my life that I have given my permission for something to be done to someone else. Like, I've never had that, I've never had to do that before. And I started to get a little weepy because of the weight of being a dad. I have to, I have to say this is okay because he can't decide. I have to decide. And, you know, if you don't sign, your child dies. If you do sign, you go, wow. Like, it was just a different moment. For those of you in the room who are Christians, you put your faith in Jesus, right? That was a moment that has changed your eternity. And you might have had a process, like many people do, where they're trying to figure out who Jesus is. Like, you see in the Gospel of John, they're kind of moving toward him. But still, it happened in a moment. You, you went from darkness to light, from death to to life. Those changes happened and they changed you forever. Well, 
So we're reading in the Gospel of John. John has been set up in such a way that this final public ministry sign is demonstrating everything else that has been going on and everything else Jesus had been saying. The moment in the ministry of Jesus, as we see it in John, forms so much of who he is and how we view him. And it happens here in John chapter 11. The resurrection of Lazarus, which we will actually spend three weeks on. Only one week of them next week is the, is the miracle itself, the resurrection itself. So we do this week on getting there. And then the, fa- the final week, the third week, on the aftermath. And the aftermath has nothing to do with how did Lazarus feel? Remember, his sister's like, he might smell bad, right? Like, did he smell when he came? Like, like there's, there's none of those things. You get nothing from Lazarus about what his experience was like or what happened for those days you were dead. All the things that we might be trying to figure out, not an issue to John, not something John's even that concerned about us knowing. John wants us to know that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That's what John's interested in. And so that's what chapter 11 is getting at. We're going to, this week, speak about the process of getting to Bethany. Next week, we'll hear about the miracle itself and the resurrection of Lazarus. The following week, the response. And we've seen now enough times in the Gospel of John to know that John drives these stories to response. They kind of always end with some type of divided opinion about who Jesus is. Some type of, we think he is who he is, and others go, we think he's crazy. Some go, he's the Messiah. Others go, he has a demon. All of those things happen again as we move through John chapter 11 in a few weeks from now. Two weeks from now, we'll see the end of that part of the story. I want to start, I guess, set it up by saying I'm going to make four, four statements today with, you know, as we go through it. Three of those statements are going to be about Jesus, and one of those statements is going to be about us. Three statements about Jesus, one statement about us. That's what we're going to do today. And because we're going more slowly through John chapter 11, remember we took all of one Sunday to go through John chapter 9. We're taking three Sundays to go through John chapter 11. Because of that, I'm going to intentionally highlight some things that we might not usually talk about. Might not usually be able to to say or speak about or some aspects of what we see in John 11 that uh, we don't, they, they don't always come to our mind. So that's where we'll be focusing. Three statements about Jesus, one statement about us. Here's your first statement about Jesus that I think we would get, but I want you to hear this, that Jesus has particular love for those who are his. Jesus has a a particular, you could say peculiar, specific love for those who are his. John will call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. We, we don't really see that yet. That language for himself is coming later. But, but John highlights Jesus' love for his friends. Jesus' love for those people who are in that relationship with him. And so we need to understand some of the characters as we get into that idea of particular love first. Understanding the characters, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Those are the three people, aside from Jesus and his disciples, who are the main players in the next three Sundays. So Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Jesus, his disciples, and then there's crowds and Pharisees that show up later. So you hear this in 11 verses 1 and 2. A certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, highlighting the specific Lazarus he was. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister 
Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So we have a a family. And John actually, where in John to this point have we seen Mary anoint the Lord Jesus? If you haven't been here every week, you might be going, shoot, maybe it's one of those weeks I missed. No, it, it isn't one of those weeks that you missed. In fact, it's coming later in the Gospel of John. And so, so it seems that John is highlighting this, uh, this specific time because that story is already so well known and he knows it's coming. He's actually foreshadowing who this is going to be. No, this is the Mary I'm talking about, the one who anointed the Lord with her hair. With ointment, wiped her feet with her hair. That's coming, but it's not yet. It's funny, sometimes you, you read the Bible and you get to a spot and you go, where did that happen? And you start going backwards and you're like, did I miss it? Gosh, I don't want to tell anybody that I missed it. I feel, feel kind of embarrassed that I haven't seen it yet. And then you like, read the next chapter like, oh, oh, it's coming, right? Like we didn't realize that John was setting us up for something that's going to exist later, like a you know, kind of Christopher Nolan film. So we see in John 12 what's happening, but it shows that John kind of has an expectation that the characters know who these people are. John's being rather specific about the crowd and the family and the location. Mary, Martha, Lazarus of Bethany, and he's ill. And you look at verse 3. The sisters said to him, Lord, they sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. You see the way that he's spoken about. Now, did the sisters go to him or did the sisters send to him? I think the sisters sent to him. But they, they sent people. And Lord, the, he whom you love is ill. And then go to verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So you see these statements about the people, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, you see their comfort in even saying to Jesus that this is someone you love. And you see John giving commentary about Jesus' love for Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Which, when we're saying that, that Jesus has a particular love for those who are his, I don't want us to miss this. You can actually even look further in how Jesus speaks about it in verse 11 as he talks to his disciples. After saying these things, he said to them, our, what's it say? What's it say? Our friend. Our friend, Lazarus, has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Try to find spots in the gospel of John where Jesus is this chummy with people. Where he speaks like this. It doesn't happen in a lot of spaces. And friendship with God doesn't show up in a lot of spaces as you read through the Bible. But it does happen in a few. And it is there for us. Jesus says this to his followers. We'll get to this in the fall. John chapter 15. You are my friends if you do what I command you. John 15, 14. You're my friends. James, the half-brother of Jesus, who uh, at this time, you remember his family was struggling to believe. The family was later to the, the game of faith in Jesus, which would make sense because I don't think my brother's the Messiah either. So you read in James 2.23, for example, that it's talking about faith and works. It says the scripture was fulfilled. It said Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called 
a friend of God. Abraham, Father Abraham with many sons, called a friend of God. Well, where might that come from? A couple of spots, but one would be 2 Corinthians 20. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before, I'm sorry, 2 Chronicles, uh, before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7. That Jesus does call people his friend. This is what I want to say to the followers of Jesus in the room. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus who are with him. You are his friend. Which is, it's interesting to say because in a world where notoriety and being seen in a picture with somebody is like what makes us a man or a woman or what makes us popular. Hey, do you know whose numbers I have in my phone? Do you know what conversation or the person I could call up? Is that Jesus would call you his friend? There are illustrations that I think we are comfortable describing ourselves as in relation to Jesus. Illustrations or metaphors. We, I think, are comfortable calling ourselves slaves or servants of Christ. That one makes sense because it shows his authority in our lives and our submission to his authority. That, that one is one we can, we can comprehend. As Paul writes to Timothy, he speaks about how you know, those who are hardworking, the farmer, the athlete, the soldier, people who understand their role and run or work hard, for the task that is before them. We understand that one. An ambassador, one who is sent with delegated authority to represent a different king and kingdom. We recognize that kind of language of ambassadorship. Servant, slave, ambassador, farmer, soldier, athlete, all of these things about being something for God in some kind of relationship. I doubt many of us use the language of friend. I doubt many of us are comfortable enough with the language Jesus himself gives to his followers. It's not as if I'm trying to buddy up to Jesus so that he can say I'm his friend, which is what we like to do in school, right? Like in school, we're going to go, well, you know, if I could get in with the right crowds, be friends with the right people, then I will have a certain level of popularity. And Jesus goes, you're already my friends. You are my friends. That is a great place to be. To be a friend of the Savior. In human relationships, often feels like our relationships exist to give us a leg up. It's about who you know, not what you know, it's who you know. All of those things we like to do. But to have the creator of the universe, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, declare that his disciples are his friends, To say to his disciples, our friend, Lazarus, has fallen asleep. But I will go wake him up. In the resurrection of Lazarus, we get familial, loving, gracious language about people who follow Jesus. And that is language that we have a hard time applying to ourselves as part of our identity in Jesus. One whom Jesus loves. One whom Jesus cares about. That if in this metaphorical world he were sitting around and people were bad-mouthing you, he'd go, that's my friend, you can't say that. You can't say that about him, you can't say that about her. 
She's my friend. That that's what we get in the Savior of the world. And yes, we are slaves, and yes, we are ambassadors, and yes, we are farmers, athletes, and soldiers. Yes, we are servants. Yes, we have died and been crucified with Christ, and it's not ourselves, but Christ who lives in us, and the life that we live in this flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. Jesus has a peculiar, particular love for his followers. And it is really hard for us, people who like to work and gain status through work, to realize that that relationship exists. It exists. Friendship with God through the work of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing we get to see in this. The second thing that we get to see, and we're going to see it more specifically in how Jesus processes the news of Lazarus' illness and death. Okay? But Jesus works to make his father seen. That's the second statement, right? Jesus has a particular love for his people, and Jesus works to make his father seen. So I'm going to borrow this language from one of my seminary professors. I've shared it here before. It's still the most helpful understanding of glory that I, that I know. Right? When I go, what does it mean to glorify God? Because if I stand up here, or I stand in a group of people that have a reformed soteriology, and I go, give God glory, they're like, amen. And I'm like, what does that mean? They're like, I don't know. I'll just amen it, right? I, I, I just amen the statement because glory is a good word. If you say glory, I amen it, I clap for you, I applaud it. But when it comes down to like, what does it mean to glorify God? We kind of run out of things, right? And all you do, whether eating or drinking, give glory to God? Give glory to God? What does that mean? How do I give, I mean, it's a ham sandwich. Are you like, you know, do I have to say something? You know, and I just want to say that this is for the glory of God. You know, every bite. We, we get stuck there. So here's what I would say. And this, was, this was passed on to me, and I passed it on to you again and again and again because it helped me. That, that the glory of God is anything that makes God seen. The glory of God is anything that makes God seen. This really helped me. Because when I think about it like that, then in my speech towards you, if it is loving and gracious or gentle, am I not glorifying God? Rooted in him, speaking in a way that would be reflective of my Savior. When we sit here on a Sunday or stand here on a Sunday and we sing to the Lord, are we not using even our vocal cords to declare things that are true about him? And that glorify God? To speak of things that are true? Because when we speak of things that are true, we're making those truths be seen and even reverberate in the room. Things that are true about our Lord. When Jesus says in verse 4, this illness does not lead to death, it is for the glory of God. Why? He gives the reason. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. But then you think about what is glory to make God seen, and you go, oh yeah. So that the Son of God, the Savior of the world, might be seen in it. And how will he be seen? You'll hear that next week. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Reveal something about Jesus. Which reveals something about our Savior, which glorifies God. Makes God seen. 
So in the statement, like, how do you glorify God in your marriage? You reflect the relationship that Jesus has with his church between husband and wife. That's how you glorify God in your marriage. How do you glorify God in your parenting? Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Right? right? Glorifying God is not not just a mental commitment that we make, but an action commitment that reflects him. That, that, that demonstrates him, that shows people him, both in how we live and in how we speak and what we do and in how we think. Yes, glorifying God with our minds. To think about him rightly, to meditate on his truth, to dwell on his beauty. Jesus works to make the Father seen, John eleven four. 4. Jesus also says a similar thing in John 9, 3. Why is this man blind? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? And he goes, it was neither person's sin, but so that God might be glorified. So in, a human, in human language, right, when might this show up? Let's say you're at a restaurant and you love your dinner. What might you say in that moment? Right? What might you say? Can I talk to the chef? Not not just about, if you really like it, you might tell all your friends, this was great steak. Or if you don't eat steak, this was a great salad. And if you don't eat salad, like this was a great glass of water. I don't know, but like whatever it is, you start speaking about it. And if you're serious enough about it, you go, I want to talk to the person who made it. Have you ever had maybe an author that you met, they've written a book that you love, and it's really transformative. And you're I don't want to just delight in the book. The book was great. I want to be the person who wrote it. And I want to tell them, this changed me. Right? Well, what is that? In human language, that would be glorifying that person. Demonstrating that you're not interested just in the meal, but the person who made it. And as we look at the work of Jesus throughout the Gospel of John, it is not just about what Jesus does, but what that reveals about who Jesus is. And so you see the work, and you look at the work, and you consider the work and you get to see your God through it. The work of the Messiah. As Jesus ministers all throughout the Gospel of John, he is working to make his Father seen. He's in unity with his Father. And he's going to reveal more of this glory that he is the resurrection of life next week. He has stated to this point that he is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. John has stated this in his epilogue there at the beginning, the first 14 verses of John chapter 1. John has stated things about Jesus. But we're about to see next week Jesus raise a dead man. Which shows all the things that have been said about Jesus. Demonstrates all the things that Jesus has said. Which now kind of helps us when we look at last week's passage. If you don't believe in what I've just said, look at the works. Look at the works. And people will look at the resurrection of Lazarus, and some are going to go, okay, I have, no, I have nothing else to say. And others go, he's causing problems. He can't keep doing this. He needs to die. Jesus has a particular love for his people Jesus works to make his father seen. Now, here's a third one, and this starts to move toward that, you know, three statements about Jesus, one about us. But this is something that's hard for us. It has to do with the delay that we read about. The delay is interesting. Jesus' delay 
is for his disciples' good. And, just subnote, it also demonstrates that he is bound by no man or their expectation. If people I loved came to me and said, someone's sick, someone's dying, come see them. If I waited one day, two days, three days to see them, might you think that those people would think I'm less concerned about them? Get here now. Get here now. And Jesus goes, our friend has died, but I'll go wake him up. And he waits. Look at this. Verse 5, John's, I think John is in part putting verse 5 in about his love for Mary, Martha, Lazarus, because of what's about to happen. Now, just so you know, reader, Jesus loved them. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Does that not make sense to you? That's confusing, right? When I hear that he's ill, now I love them, and when I heard that he was ill and going to die, I waited. That seems, humanly speaking, to be the opposite of what is loving in the moment. Jesus does the same kind of thing in the Gospel of Mark. After a busy day of ministry, everyone wants to go talk to Jesus, and the disciples go find him praying, and they're like, everybody's looking for you, dude. Where are you? And Jesus just goes to another town. He doesn't even care that his whole day would have been filled with people who want to see him. He goes, I got work to do over here, so he leaves. That's kind of frustrating. But Jesus owes himself to no man's opinion. He's there to obey his Father and secure our redemption. So I want to talk about the delay geographically. Okay, so if you have a, a, a Bible in, that has maps in it, you can look at those maps. But essentially, I'm going to try and do this so that I'm the map and, and, and you can kind of see, right? Like, like ancient Near Eastern maps were east, like the east orientation, so east was up. So we're going to go back to north. We're going to put it over here. You got Israel and you have Jordan. Got me? And right, there's the Jordan River that goes between. Galilee's up here. Jerusalem's down here. Uh, desert region down here. And so we have that land all going on. So if Jerusalem's kind of over here, we read at the end of John chapter 10 that he went away to where John the Baptist was baptizing. Right at the end of John chapter 10, he, he kind of skadoodled. He, he went away where John was baptizing. And where John was baptizing, people aren't sure. They're not totally sure. So... It's called Bethany Beyond the Jordan. Bethany Beyond the Jordan, right? So there's Bethany that's by Jerusalem, two miles from Jerusalem. And there's Bethany Beyond the Jordan, which is in a different spot. So if Jerusalem's kind of right here, and there's Bethany that's kind of over here, there's Bethany Beyond the Jordan, and there's one that's kind of on the east side of the Jordan River. People think that maybe John was baptizing there. In fact, if you just Google search the place of John's baptism, they'll probably give you a spot that's just east of Jericho. Just east of Jericho on the other side of the river. Then there's a spot north, which is actually on the Galilee side, right? So see if Galilee's up here, there's a spot over here. If you read about the cows of Bashan in the Old Testament, that area was called Bashan. Or if you're familiar with like kind of modern language, the Golan Heights, okay? So, so there's this area, and there's a spot in that area that was called Batanea. Hear that? Batanea, Bethany. And so when they go to it's where John was baptizing, people are a little confused on where it was. They go, well, was it this spot? 
that was by Jericho, which origin started to make, O-R-I-G-E-N, not origin, origin the kind of church guy. He thought it was the southern spot, which is when he said, everyone's like, yeah, sure, that's fine. And then there's this spot up north. People don't know where it was. People don't know where it was where John was baptizing. It depends on how you lay out the timeline or put the details down. So some are going to go, no, he was, he was north. Here's why this matters. If he was up north, it's going to take him four days to get to Bethany. The word has to get to him, which is going to take about four days. He's going to wait two days, and he's going to go back four days. That's a long wait to get there. <clears throat> Extended time of definitely being dead. If it's the one that's a little far or a little closer, it's going to be maybe a two-day journey. Or, I'm sorry, a one-day journey. So it's a one-day journey, a two-day wait, and a one-day journey. Right? So it's, it's four days in total. From the leaving to tell them Lazarus is ill, to Lazarus dying, to Jesus getting back. Either way, and here's why I, I think Jesus was at the Jericho one. I think he's at the southern one. But again, like how you line it out, it does kind of help you with other details on, well, how did he get from here to here in this day, or how did this happen? I think because John's ministry wasn't at one spot, I think, there was, I think he was at the southern one. So we're looking at a four-day delay from illness and wanting to tell Jesus to Jesus getting there. One day, two-day wait, one day back. By the time he gets there, and it starts with Jesus saying, this illness won't lead to death. So Jesus speaks to them as if Lazarus is still alive. And then it's like he waits for Lazarus to die and then gets the disciples together and says, our friend Lazarus has died. Now we're going to go back. Right? Like I think of Kanye, like how could you be so heartless? Like, like how could you have done that in that moment? Because it seems to be the most gracious thing that you could do was get there immediately. So why would Jesus delay? He says, he says this. I'm glad, in verse 11, 12, 13, we see this kind of back and forth. Lazarus has fallen asleep, I will awaken him. The disciples don't understand Jesus' language. So they say, well, if he's fallen asleep, he'll wake up. He'll wake up. You don't have to go. The reason they don't want him to go is because they're freaked out, if you read verse 8, that people are going to kill him. It's close to Jerusalem. And so it's not far from Jerusalem. So why, why would you get closer to Jerusalem if you didn't have to? John lets us know Jesus had spoken about his death, but they thought, I like that he says they thought, like he wasn't in the group, right? They thought that he meant taking rest in his sleep. So Jesus told them plainly because falling asleep wasn't good enough. Lazarus has died. I, I love this. Like, Jesus kind of just went, fine. If you're not going to understand what I mean, Lazarus has died. Now look at verse 15. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Even in the response to the news about Lazarus, what do we get but a Savior who is only concerned about doing what his father has put before him. And so, he says, after two days, I'll go. The disciples don't want him to go there because they're afraid he will die. 
Jesus gives his answer. And this is great because it shows that his idea, his heart, is to do work as long as there is work to be done. That's what he's going to say to us in 9 and 10. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? That's how they would tell time. There's kind of, you work these, this run and you sleep this run. You do stuff here and not there. We have lights like this, and you guys are all workaholics, so you work more or less than 12 hours a day. But their reasoning was, during the day you work, and at night you don't work. That was his, that was his idea. Are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus wants his disciples to know, regardless of what's going on, regardless of their fear, their concern, what he's about to go do, to go to Bethany, which is close to Jerusalem, where people want to kill him. He says, as long as there's work to be done, walking in the day, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. This is like when Peter says to Jesus, Nobody's going to take you, Lord. Nobody's going to kill you. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Because at that point in time, Peter is not concerned about the things of God. He's concerned about the things of man. And so Jesus' point to his disciples to try and again to teach them is to say, as long as there's something to happen in my ministry on this earth, I will not be touched. You want to worry about walking at night. As long as you're working in the daylight, you can. And John is so good at having us hear something here. And we go, yeah, we get it. His disciples do the same thing. We do the same thing. We go, yeah, okay, I, I guess, you know, for, if we go during the day, Jesus, it'll be harder for them to kill you. I'm sure that's what they were thinking. Well, yeah, as long as the sun's up, you know, I doubt anyone's going to take you, especially in Bethany where you're loved by this family. They're not going to want to go over to Bethany and get you. So they're probably just having this human reasoning going, yeah, okay. Let's just be sure we leave at the first in the morning, you know, like it's sunup, so that we can get there by sundown. That way we don't die. Jesus is trying to help them understand as long as he's working, things are fine. And as long as they're with him, God is doing what God would, would do. This is unique to salvation history and also really comforting to the disciple today. It's unique in salvation history because Jesus is showing, I'm going to do my Father's work. He knows he's going to die, and he will not die until it's the right time. It's also helpful for us who panic about whether or not we're doing the right thing, for operating in the right way. Is this what, you know, like all the people are like, what's God's will here? What should I do here? How should this work? And I just go, you don't have to be too worried about that, right? The best place you can be is just with the Lord and and. Being faithful to what he has revealed in his word, and you live that out, and if it's up or down or left or right, or you move here or there, or you do this or that, you're not too worried. Why? Because as long as you're following the Lord, you're fine. And so it's specific to the moment, but also for the disciple today, we can hear that and go, yeah, that is actually true. I can panic about, well, what would happen if I go here? This happens if maybe you, you're considering being a, um, let's say you want to go to an unreached people group. And I don't see, I don't mean like visit, I mean live and die, right? Like you're you're gonna train, you're gonna go, and you're gonna exist among the unreached. Well, what are all the things that go into your head? How are we gonna live here? What about our kids? What if we you know if you don't have kids, are we gonna have kids in the field? Are we just gonna be single? What about this? Maybe you're single and you go, I'd really like to go marry, but I feel like this is, you know, the burden is on me now to go. All these things that kind of get into our minds and all the ways we try and go, this probably shouldn't happen because we can't foresee what might happen otherwise, right? 
That's what the disciples are doing. We can't go to Bethany. Don't you know they want to kill you? And you can hear, you can hear the, the well-minded but tool of Satan Christian going, but there's ministry to be done here. Don't we need more churches in spring? Not as many. Right? Like, you know, like we don't need as many churches in spring as we do in places where no one knows who Jesus is. And so there is a priority to it, right? But we kind of talk ourselves out to go, well, yeah, but there's stuff to be done here and there's things to be done there. And what about this and this and this? You go, you know what? If God's heart is for the nations, then probably going there, supporting it, encouraging it, training toward it, that's probably an okay thing. You don't have to worry about all the other tangential concerns that might come because as you understand God's heart, you go, that'll take care of itself. And you can hear Jesus say that even in this. While it is day, you do work. There's work to be done. You worry about it at night. As long as his disciples stay with him, they're good. And so his delay in coming is to teach his disciples more about him. The power he has over death, the authority he has in life, and so they need the lesson too. And I want to say this to all of you who are waiting for or on something, that God is never late. He is never late. You do not have to wonder if you've missed your train. That's always a fear of ours because we're so centered on ourselves and whether or not we did the right thing. And yet, we don't have to have that concern when we're with the Lord because he takes care of us. And so you may be going, how come I haven't gotten the promotion I wanted yet? Or how come this situation hasn't come up? Or how come this situation hasn't happened yet, God? How come, and we, we all have that list of things that we wish would exist that don't exist and we're wondering where God is in it. His delay is for our good. That he is not, when silent, inactive. That's one of the hardest things for us to, to, to grasp as we walk with the Lord. Because there are times when it really does feel like you and the Lord are in lockstep. You're praying for stuff and bam, it happens. Like you're wanting to see something change and it changes. Like you're like, this is awesome. And then for like the next seven and a half years, you're going, what in the world have I done? I remember hearing this back from one of my mentors where he goes, there comes a time in your life where you don't think about whether or not it was a good year and you start to define it by decades. Was this a good decade? <laughs> like, like, that's all. You, don't even, you can't even comprehend a year anymore. Like, you know what? The 2020s stunk. The 2030s have been okay. I mean, that's really how it starts to happen. I thought he was crazy. And now that I can think in decades... I wished that he were. So what do we see in Jesus' statement? But the continued unveiling of the mission of Jesus. And the continued growth and understanding of the disciples' faithfulness. So John shows us where the disciples were in the moment, how Jesus was teaching them. And I think all of us who follow Jesus can see us in that. Jesus is teaching us stuff. We're going... Why are we going if he's just asleep? Why? And we do sometimes just need the Lord, and maybe that's a prayer all of us should have. God, can you just tell me plainly? Because I'm kind of stupid. And I won't understand what you mean if you say fall asleep. I just need you to really dumb it down for me. And he does. 
He's died, but I will go take him. And I'm glad that you, I'm glad you understand this now because this is for your good. Thank you. Sometimes you need those moments. Right? Please stop speaking in a confusing tone, but falling asleep is actually Christian language given to what happens when people die because it anticipates the hope of the resurrection. That's why death isn't death. Speaking on behalf of the faith. It's sleep. Soul sleep. Because we long for the resurrection. So that's why the language is used. Lazarus is asleep. But I'll go wake him. Because that's how easy it is for Jesus to make death come alive. It's as easy as us waking up from a nap. It is of no issue for Jesus to do these things. Three statements about Jesus, one about us. Here's the one about us. You see this represented in Thomas right at the end. This is represented about Thomas. And what's funny is, what do we call Thomas? Doubting Thomas. That's the, if, if you meet him in heaven, he's going to be like, dude, why, why do you have to call me doubting Thomas? Like, like, you know, why don't you call me Thomas from this statement? Uh, you know, like, like, you know, confident Thomas. Why don't we call him confident Thomas here rather than doubting Thomas? But no, we have to call him, con- you know, doubting Thomas. So poor Thomas, in verse 16, called the twin, said this. They know Jesus. They want to kill Jesus. They know Jesus says, if you're with me, you're good. So Thomas chimes in and he goes, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas didn't realize how far into his mouth he was sticking his foot. But he didn't need to. This is the same Thomas who at the resurrection goes, I don't think it's you, Lord. Unless I see the wounds, I'm not going to believe. That's the same guy. So here he is in John chapter 11 going, let's go. If he's telling us to go, we're going to go and we're going to die. And then a few chapters later, he's like, I don't think that's you anymore. Which is just the encapsulation of our walks with the Lord, where some days we're like, man, this is it. I am going to quit my job, plan a church, do all this stuff forever. And then you wake up and you get a bill for $1,000. And you're like, you know what? Never mind. I'm just going to go ahead and keep my job. I was kind of crazy. The pizza was old. And, and I probably just wasn't thinking right. We, we are both of those things in the same 12 hours. But here's a statement about us, about disciples. Is that disciples, and this is important, they follow him to the death. Even when they don't realize what they're saying. This is what's great about us, is that we're, Lord, I'm in. Right? Like, we get that kind of enthusiasm. Lord, I'm in. And then you realize what in meant. And like, well, I'm already here. I'm already here. And, you know, we can almost hear the voice of our Lord going, yeah, I didn't tell you everything that was going to come along with it because you probably would have run away. But once you're in, right, you're in the family, you're one of the sheep, you go, well, here we are, <laughs> so I'm in. But that's, that's still even in that, the graciousness of God toward us. Because when we get to Thomas not being sure of who Jesus was, and needing more proof. You know what Jesus doesn't do? Well, you remember at the resurrection of Lazarus where you said you were going to go with me to die, and here I am. Resur- like, it, he doesn't throw in his face the fact that he seemed to have more faith earlier, and now he has less faith. He doesn't try to make him feel like an idiot for that. He doesn't try to make him feel small or diminished. He goes, what do you need? 
Feel this. Feel this. That's what he does. Because, remember, he holds us. We don't hold us. He holds us. So this is what's great. We think that when we're on a mountaintop as a disciple, that, that it's because we're being really awesome. And when we're in a valley, it's because we're being really bad. And we don't realize that that whole thing is held together by God. That he's in the highest of highs, he's in the lowest of lows, that there is nowhere that we can go where we can escape him, and there's no experience that we would have that we would have without him. And so there's Thomas speaking on our behalf. Let's go, Lord. And then later going, are you the Lord? And he still shows up there and says he is. This is what's great about reading John chapter 11. Just kind of going through it bit by bit. Is you get to see Jesus' love for his followers. Jesus' work to glorify his father. Tied to that, Jesus' delay even being for our good. And then as we see that, we go, I'm in, Lord. Wherever I need to go. Whatever, if they're going to kill you, we'll just go and die with you. You'll see soon enough all the disciples scatter. Jesus still holds them together, doesn't he? He's still there in it. That's what's great about our God. Is that even as he's about to go head to Bethany and, and do for the crowd the sign of signs in front of them. He's dealing with all the people in it particularly. He's delaying. He's teaching. He's speaking more clearly. He's hearing Thomas. He'll deal with Thomas later. All of that is going on even as they get ready to go because that's the gracious, loving, friendly heart of our Savior. His presence, his care, his love. 